We are in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, if you'll turn there with me. And uh, we now have made our way as far as verse 32. And for the last 21 weeks now, we've been working through this incredible chapter. We've been looking at the individuals that God has given us as illustrations of individuals who by God have been commended for their faith in Him and towards Him. These individuals allowed their faith to govern their actions. They allowed their faith to make decisions in critical times. They allowed their faith to uh, motivate them and push them and allow them to continue forward in their walk with the Lord. In each, in each case, circumstances were dire. In each case, the individual's personal ability and capability had been surpassed. In each case, the enemy in which the individual faced was so formidable that it almost seemed impossible for victory to take place. And yet, in each and every case, till verse 32 we have seen that by faith, victory is possible in God. And now as we come to the conclusion of our time in the Hall of Faith, as we've moved through the Hall of Faith together, as we've paralleled it with a Hall of Fame, the last inductee that we looked at as an individual was Rahab last week. And now as we are moving towards the exit of the museum and we are finishing our tour of the Hall of Faith, we are confronted by this uh, trailer. We are confronted by these uh, exiting statements. And in it, it wraps everything that we have seen up in a nice uh, way and it really demonstrates and speaks to the purpose in which the Hebrew writer wrote this particular chapter to begin with. And as we look at it together over the last 21 weeks, each and every time I start a teaching series on either Sunday or Wednesday, I will draw conclusions during the series that I have come to personally to uh, record and to archive with the messages because first and foremost I learn as I teach you the Word of God. And moving through the Word of God as we have, I've already come to one of my first concluding statements that I'd like to share with you this morning. I think it truly aptly describes everything that we have learned up until this time about faith and the individuals that God uses by faith. Again, we characterize them as ordinary individuals who were used by God in extraordinary ways. And the conclusion I came to is this. Hopefully this will work. Faith can operate in the life of any person who will dare to listen to God's word and surrender to God's will. I'm going to leave that up here for the duration of the message. I believe that faith can operate in the life of any person who will dare to listen to God's word and number two, surrender to God's will. Let's pick it up by beginning to read our text starting in verse 32 and we're going to read to verse 40 this morning. 
What more shall I say, the writer asks. I put that in there. Don't look for that. For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Some refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned and they were sawn in two and they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the desert and mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive that, I'm sorry, what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The writer is now, of course, coming to his concluding statement. It is a very definitive and a artistic style in which Hebrew writers wrote in that time. He is concluding and he is asking his readers now to remember everything up until this point. Now, if you turn with me to chapter 10, I want you to understand where the writer launched from that we originally addressed in our first message together. And if you look with me in chapter 10, verse 36, you will find the reason for us looking at each of these inductees into the hall of faith. In verse 36, For you have need to endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Let us remember the individuals, the recipients of this letter these Jewish individuals who had become Christians as, and, as, and as a result lost everything because of their faith in Christ. They lost their home. They lost their wealth and material possession. Many had been expelled from their own families uh, due to their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, they were expelled from their land, so they lost their national uh, and ethnic heritage. They then wandered uh, into the regions of the Gentiles, which then again they found themselves persecuted due to the fact that they would not recognize Caesar as God. And as a result now, they find themselves destitute. They find themselves in a place where they feel that the world has abandoned them and they have been embraced by none. And as a result, they now question the decision in which they made to follow Jesus Christ. Is it worth it to continue following Jesus Christ under the weight of such persecution and exclusion from all of the material and worldly blessings that surround us? 
So the writer of Hebrews writes to them to encourage them to hold fast, not to give up and to turn back, for there is nothing to turn back to. For Christ has come, the Messiah, and all that that means has now arrived, and they are now walking in the covenant that God has now established with man through Jesus Christ. There's nothing to go back to. Everything in the world pales in comparison to our relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's going to require them to have faith in that promise. For they may not see the rewards of that faith here on this earth. And as a result, it would be easy to simply conclude, then what's the purpose? What's the purpose of me walking with God? It seems like those in the world who do not have God, they seem to have it easier. They, have, they seem to have wealth. They seem to have prominence. They seem to have everything that I would ever want. And they don't have God. And I have God. And things have just gotten so much tougher ever since I became a Christian. And that's exactly what happens. You see, Jesus told us very clearly that the individuals who are walking in a path apart from him, they're walking on a very wide path, and that path is the path of least resistance. That path ultimately looks like it's the broad way, it's the way that is well-traveled, and every instinct that we would have in our natural body would, would indicate and signal to us that that's the way we should go. That's the way we should proceed. However, though, Jesus then told us, yes, that is our perspective, but however, understand that that way ends in destruction. For narrow is the way and rough is the path path that leads to everlasting life. He told us that from the very beginning. But when you find yourself in it, it seems like a whole new ball game. It's one thing to read academically and theoretically. But it's another thing to experience it yourself. And many are wrestling with this in our culture today. I understand it. It seems like those in the world who are corrupt are prospering. Those in the world who even hold to other gods are experiencing material wealth. They're experiencing what all the blessings of this world and so on and so forth. And yet... We seem to struggle. We seem to be paycheck to paycheck. We seem to uh, be waiting on God and standing on his promises each and every day. And things seem difficult for us as believers in Jesus Christ. But let me say this to you. When I see the world prospering in that way, I say this to myself. This is the best it's ever going to get for them. Whatever prosperity, whatever material blessing they receive or have here on this earth, apart from Jesus Christ, this is all that they can ever expect. And eventually time catches up with them. Eventually the material possessions, you know, rust and moths get at them, as Jesus says. They deteriorate. Every day, I should say every week when I drive through my neighborhood, it's always amazing what I see thrown out at the curb. Things that were once so coveted by people now find themselves at the edge of the driveway waiting for the garbage man to come and to pick them up. 
The other day I saw one of those large screen TVs that it was a projection TV and it had the three big round lights in the front, you know, all the colors, you know, red, blue, and green and so forth. And it projected it up on the screen. And I remember when those came out and everybody had to have them and everybody coveted them. And they were the greatest thing. Oh, you can't watch TV unless you watch it like this. And now that finds itself obsolete at the end of the driveway. And now we are watching televisions in 4 and 5K where the detail is so precise that it erodes your retinas in your eyes. It's so sharp. It's so crisp. It's so clear. You know, it's amazing to me. But just think of how much people wanted those things. And you know what I'm talking about. Maybe they're, you know, the material possessions that everybody had to have at one time. And now they're in a landfill somewhere, right? And then I think to myself, this is the best it's ever going to get. And you know what? They're constantly going to be chasing the next thing. Because to keep being satisfied and keep that material a sense, uh, you know, uh, fed, they have to keep looking for the next greatest thing. I may never have the first greatest thing, therefore I don't look forward to the next greatest thing. But for me as a believer in Jesus Christ, this world is the worst it's ever going to get. And it's funny because when we drive home each and every Sunday and each and every Wednesday, we drive through an area of our our, um, local area here that the houses are immense. I mean, they are just immense. You could park airplanes in some of these things. And each and every time, Dean and I will look at these things, and we'll be, oh, that's a beautiful big home, isn't it? And we are just so thankful to go back to our little condo and to have what we have. I don't like cleaning what little I have in a big house like that. You know? And I, I don't begrudge them for having that house, and I don't look down on them for having that house and me having what I have. I'm just saying I'm content with what I have. especially in three months when I make the last mortgage payment. And then I'm going to do the happy dance. (laughs) Was that a little too charismatic for this group? I think you understand what I'm saying, don't you? And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to these people, and he's saying, "Don't, don't get distracted. Don't lose heart. Yes, you may be in a place of destitute at this moment, but you don't know what God's going to do tomorrow. And even if he takes you home, you are going to be in a paradise with him for all eternity. And in my perspective, eternity means so much more to me than the temporal comforts of the moment. And as the writer now concludes, he asks them this question in verse 37 of chapter 10. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, talking about the return of Jesus Christ. But my right, the one who's living rightly with God up until that time shall live by faith. Underline that because that is what he is explaining and demonstrating and illustrating to each one of us in chapter 11. What does that look like to live by faith while we wait for the return of Jesus Christ? That's what he is stating here. And notice, if the one shrinks back, 
if the one retreats and goes back to where they had once come from. God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. However, though, that is reiterated in the opposite manner in verse 6 of chapter 11. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Forever, whoever would draw near to God must first believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But then the writer of Hebrews encourages us in verse 39 of chapter 10 when he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I'm living for eternity as an individual. And though I understand as a father, as a husband, as an individual who has committed to a home and a mortgage and etc., I have earthly responsibilities that the Bible clearly tells me I must fulfill and meet. But that's not my overall drive. That's not my overall objective and goal. My goal is to live for eternity and allow the personal earthly responsibilities to fall in line with that initial premise of the objective of living for the glory of God. And that's what I was trying and hoping and praying our study would bring us into, allowing us to look past this world to the future. Again, not negating our personal or immediate responsibilities of the moment, but not getting so bogged down in them that they dominate our decision-making and our thinking and our perspective, where then we become short-sighted and therefore lose the overall perspective of eternity. Does that make sense? That was my hope and my... uh, prayer for our time together in this 11th chapter. In verse 32, though, we pick it up in our concluding statement from our writer. And after leaving the exhibit or the inductee, the example of Rahab, he then says, what more shall I say? He's saying, do I need to go on? Do I need to prove my point any further? For I could easily, that's what he's about to say and tell us, I could easily remind you of individuals such as Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah. Individuals who, against extraordinary circumstances, allowed their faith to move them into positions of victory. When it came to Gideon, Gideon was called to go up against the Midianites. He had 32,000 soldiers, and God says that was too many. But the Midianites were a formidable army, and they had about 100,000 troops. So 32 is already a number too uh, low to engage 100,000 individual troops, but God said that was too much. So the individuals who were timid, God allowed them to go home. He says, that's it, you guys, you don't need to continue on with us, you can go home. But then he was still left with too many, and so the second wave of people that the Lord purged through were those who were more concerned about their own personal comfort than that of the glory of God. And from 32,000, Gideon found himself with 300 completely and utterly outnumbered in every way, shape, or form, and God brought them victory. 
And you would have to believe that Gideon knew that it was God and not him who fought the battle and did the work. When Barak came up, he was called to battle against the Canaanites. But really, it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews brings him to our attention because it was actually one named Deborah that I think should have got the credit. For Barak said, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere unless Deborah goes with me. And so God allowed Deborah to go with him, and he was uh, victorious against the Canaanites, and God saw real trust and listed him amongst the men of faith. Then you come to Samson, and you're like, boy, this guy barely got anything right. Why in the world would he even be named? But when it was all said and done, at moments when the impossible confronted Samson, each and every time he relied on God, even at that very last moment that he pushed the pillars down and collapsed the building on the Philistines. Oh, he was weak in his flesh. And of course, he had a a propensity to fall into the temptation of Delilah. But God still used him. And then we come to you know, Japheth, and that's an interesting one to, li- to list also. But he rose to be the deliverer of his people from the Amorites. Ammonites, I should say. He illustrates the truth of that faith, enables a man to rise above his birth environment and to make history for God. Now, he was an illegitimate child. He was born out of wedlock. And yet God used him greatly for his purpose because that individual was capable of placing his faith and trust in God. See, it's not just the heroes, Abraham, Moses, and uh, David, and they had their flaws certainly, didn't they? But other individuals more common than them, even to the Jewish people, had the same capacity to trust God and therefore to be led and moved by God in miraculous ways. Now, There's a common denominator amongst those four names that I think is very important to our study. The writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, specifically selected these first four names to list as individuals that he could continue on as uh, with, and just time is not allowing him to do so. And if anybody can tell me that, I will be so impressed. There's a common denominator amongst those four which sets the background for why it's even more extraordinary that that they did what they did. All four of those are from the book of Judges. And the book of Judges depicts Israel in one of the most difficult period of their national existence, where everything seemed to be against them. They'd have a good judge and they'd experience some prosperity and then all of a sudden they'd have bad judges that turned against God and they'd write back down again. And in the wake of that turmoil, and in the wake of that turmoil, these individuals were still able to demonstrate the faith needed to see victory even in chaotic circumstances. I think that's a point that needs to be considered. If you read Judges, you better take Dramamine before you begin the journey. Dramamine is a pill for motion sickness because you're going to go up and you're going to go down and you're going to go up and you're going to go down. And by the time you're done with it, your head's going to be spinning and it comes and concludes with Samuel. 
who is mentioned there, and then, of course, to David. It's basically saying that even in the low periods of Israel's existence or in the high periods of Israel's existence under King David, this faith is able to be demonstrated. And then, of course, it came to the prophets. And the prophets were notoriously rejected by the Jewish people continuously, weren't they? And, of course, these names would strategically encourage the original readers. Remember the days of Judges? Well, you remember Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephite. They were all able to do it. So can you. You're being persecuted by your Jewish brethren. So were the prophets. And even David and Samuel, who are commended for their faith. And obviously, you know, when it comes to David, you think of Goliath. And when it comes to Samuel, you think of his dedication unto God and his faithfulness to God. And as a result, the original readers would have undoubtedly read these individuals. And in verse 33, these individuals who through faith conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, who's that? Daniel, undoubtedly. Quenched the power of the fire. Most believe, Jewish scholars believe, that's speaking of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who aren't even mentioned here, but were thrown into the fiery furnace. Their attitude was, we are not going to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace, and then how good are you going to be to your God then? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to Nebuchadnezzar, listen, we are fully confident that even if you throw us in, if our God chooses to save us, then we'll walk out of this fire. If not, then to his glory, we have not bent our knee to an idol. And of course, you know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace. They walked around. Nebuchadnezzar looked down. and Instead of seeing three, he saw four, as we believe that Christ met them there in the fiery furnace. And they were the first three on-fire Christians that we had. But listen to what he says. Escaped the edge of the sword, undoubtedly David, as he ran from Saul. They were made strong out of their weakness. Even though it was not in them to be faithful, their faith allowed them strength to be faithful. That's what he's saying here. And they became mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight, whether it be the Ammonites, the Canaanites, or the Midianites. But then we get to verse 35. And he brings up, the writer of Hebrews brings to the attention of those individuals in whom he is writing to, the remembrance of two cases of resurrection, one through Elisha and one through Elijah where two women asked the prophets to come and to pray over their dead child, and in each case, God rose the child from the dead. In 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24, or in 1 Kings 17, oh, I'm sorry, I listed it twice here, 2 Kings, and I forgot the scripture reference. I'll give that to you afterwards if you're interested. But as an example they were given to show the individuals who were suffering at the hands of such great persecution at that time that even if death were to come about, 
in their own personal experience with God, a resurrection awaited for them. The book of Daniel really gives us the idea of resurrection, but here are two examples of it in the Old Testament. Resurrection, of course, is the look forward to. It is the moment in which uh, the individual is therefore justified completely before God in the sense that their justification is now made complete for one either goes to heaven or one then is separated from God in all eternity in hell at the time of the resurrection. Now, there's a drastic change in our text here. He changes gears. Because up until this point, we've been speaking on individuals, their faith being commended by God, who demonstrated uh, their faith and received great victory in doing so. But does that mean one who suffers and dies as a martyr on behalf of Christ has any less faith than those who experience victory? Absolutely not. In fact, we are going to see in our text that these individuals are commended in even a greater manner. Now, it's one thing to experience what Abraham, Moses, and, and uh, Jacob, and so forth did in the miraculous way and God working through their faith. But what about those individuals whose faith is simply sustaining them through great physical and imprisonment? Their faith sustaining them each and every day, not knowing if this is going to be the last day of their lives. Thinking of the first martyr of the New Testament, Stephen, did he have any less faith when he simply proclaimed the truth to the religious leaders, showing them through their own history, their stiff neck unwillingness to submit to God and to his Holy Spirit? Did that require any less faith than an individual who experienced some great uh, victorious prevails, such as being spared from the lion's den or seeing the parting of the Red Seas. God says no. In fact, in some ways, I believe that these demonstrations of faith are even greater. Notice what they say here. After reminding them of the, the children who were resurrected, brought back from the dead by resurrection... He goes on to say, but some were tortured, refusing to accept release, meaning that their persecution, their torment would have ended if they simply renounced the God in whom they served. They would have been or could have been delivered if they simply said, we no longer want to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are willing to recant but they refused to do so, even though they brought greater suffering upon themselves for doing so. And they did so, so that they might rise again to a better life, which we'll come back to in a moment. Now others suffered mockings and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. This is undoubtedly probably speaking of Isaiah, who is sawn in two by Manasseh. They were killed with the sword. They went about in sheep, uh, skins of sheep and goats and destitute and afflicted and mistreated. Now notice what he says next. These are individuals who had 
great faith also. Who God in his sovereign understanding and what brought him glory to the greatest degree allowed the suffering to continue. Let us understand that the New Testament writers, when they came to suffer for Jesus Christ, praised God for the privilege of suffering for Jesus Christ. They felt that it was a proper response to their right living for Jesus Christ. You know, today we avoid any kind of conflict or persecution, and we do so by denying our faith in God in one way or another. But these individuals saw that suffering on behalf of Jesus Christ was something to praise him for. Remember when Paul and Barnabas was, uh, when they were in um, uh, Philippi, they were arrested and they were put in stocks and chains. And during that night, they were singing and praising God, even though their bodies were in agony due to the position in which they were held in. These individuals showed great faith even though they had suffered and some of them died due to the fact that their faith would not allow them to deny their God. Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, interesting chapter. He's struggling with a thorn in the flesh. He prays and asks God to relieve him of that thorn, and God says, my grace is sufficient for you. That thorn buffered him in a way that allowed him to remain humble in the light of the grand revelation in which God gave to Paul about himself. Paul saw it as a tool of humility. Paul saw it as an an instrument in which would allow him to continue to proceed on knowing that it was God working through him and not he himself. Well, how do I know that? Because he praises God and God says to him clearly, and it's Jesus speaking, that it's in your weakness, Paul, that I will show myself strong. It's one thing to rejoice with God in victory in the sense of being delivered in such a miraculous way such as the Red Sea and so forth, and they broke out in a song. But let me ask you a question. After seeing God deliver the children of Israel through the Red Sea in the manner in which he did, that incredible sign, they then praised him in song in in, in chapter 15. Now, was that enough for them to believe God further going on in their wilderness journey. No, they started complaining again, didn't they? Signs and wonders are wonderful to see, but they seem to have a very uh, short uh, shelf life in the life of the believer. They need to see another sign and wonder. They need to see something else to once again verify and, and demonstrate God's faithfulness. However, though, Paul saw that in these moments of weakness, in these moments of difficulty, of trial, in these moments of uh, persecution and suffering is when some of the deepest life lessons with God are learned. Corey Temboom, one of my heroes in the faith, reading about her time in the concentration camps in Germany and how God used her so significantly to lead ladies to to Christ just prior to them being exterminated, executed by the Nazi regime. 
where she would rejoice when a barracks would be quarantined and they would be thrown into it that was infested with lice and therefore allowing them a moment of privacy for the guards would not enter that barracks so they were allowed to have the Bible study to allow these individuals to hear the gospel and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. One morning she prayed and asked the Lord for just a moment alone with him and she was given uh, latrine duty where she had to go and stand outside the latrine that all the inmates used and of course many of them were very sick and her job was to make sure that the waste and the the waste would continue flowing down the hill so she would have this big broom that she would have to use to move the waste material down the hill so it wouldn't get dammed up and it would continue flowing uh, freely but she thanked god because it was her time alone with him that she had asked for And when I read this woman's writings, I find an intimacy with God that I don't find in very many people. I find an understanding of God that I don't find with very many people. Because of this suffering, she grew in her dependence and intimacy with God like in no other place. And I believe this is what Paul was referring to This is what Paul was grateful for after the Lord refused to release him from the uh, bondages of that affliction. And then these words are given. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, he says about this, that that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Your weakness in the Greek. I'm all for the victorious experiences, right? I'm all for the parting of the Red Seas and the collapsing of the walls of Jericho. But let us not dismiss the incredible times that God has with an individual, not on the pinnacle, but in the valley, such as Joseph in the prison. Before David could become king, he ran on the countryside and was pursued by Saul living in caves and so forth. You don't think that prepared David's heart to become the king in which he became? The man after God's own heart? Very interesting consideration. And as we continue on in our text this morning, we read of these individuals in verse 38. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says of whom the world was not worthy of. These individuals whose faith sustained them in their suffering, allowed them to die as martyrs for the, and as individuals for the cross or for God at this point. And they were wandering about in the deserts and mountains. Think how this would have identified with the original reader. And in the dens and the caves of the earth. And why did they do it? Verse 35, they did it due to the fact that they were looking forward to a better resurrection. 
They knew that they could sell out. They knew that they could renounce God. They knew that they could recant and turn and go the same way the world was and experience what the world would have to offer apart from God. But they knew in their heart that one day there's this resurrection coming and some will be resurrected to life and others will be resurrected to death. And they wanted to be part of those who resurrected unto life. As one wrote, he said, the world treated them as they were not worthy to live. But the Spirit of God burst forth here with the in, an interjection that actually, uh, actually it was the other way around completely. The world was not worthy of them, he writes. For they wandered in the desert and in the mountains and in the dens and in the caves of the earth. They were disposed of homes, separated from families, pursued like animals, expelled from society. They endured heat and cold, distressed and hardship, but they would not deny their Lord. And he writes in conclusion, in fact, it takes more faith to endure than it does to escape. Like the three Hebrew children, we should trust God and obey him, even if he does not deliver us. And why look at the last two verses, 39 and 40, and wrapping this up this morning. And all these, speaking of every individual that has been in, uh, brought into or inducted into the hall of faith, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They were operating before the coming of Jesus Christ. They were operating with limited knowledge, limited perspective, limited understanding of even the identity and the characteristics of God. And yet they still prevailed allowing their faith to triumph in either being victorious and being delivered or even waiting for the suffering to end in their personal death. The writer is saying, if they could do it, so can we who are now endued with the power of the Holy Spirit. So should we now be able to endure and to press forward because the Christ has come. And the kingdom has been inaugurated. And Jesus Christ is now on the throne. And that he is working in the new birth. We have that new birth working in us to allow us to overcome even ourselves. Then we're giving the coming of the Holy Spirit. That within him we are then given a peace that surpasses all understanding. And what their lives began... Ours is now concluding in the wake of the arrival of Jesus Christ. They looked forward, we look back. And as a result, if they did it, this is what I'm paraphrasing it for you, but summing it up the same way that it, sh that it should be taken. If they did it, so can we. So can we push forward. That's something better the Hebrew writer talks about in Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, 
since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Do you realize that many of the individuals talked about in the hall of faith never got to experience and to practically realize the promises in which God had made to them, but they trusted him just the same. And they were willing to sacrifice even though they personally at that moment weren't going to benefit from the fulfillment of those promises. Now that those promises have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, how much more then should we be able to endure the difficulties of this world? That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us. One wrote, he says, faith enables us to turn from the approval of the world and seek only the approval of God. If God is glorified by delivering his people, he will do it. If he sees fit to be glorified by not delivering his people, then he will also do that. But we must never conclude that the absence of deliverance means a lack of faith on part of God's children. So how do I develop this faith? Well, as I had stated earlier in our series, by getting to know your God as thoroughly as you can. Well, how can I do that? First and foremost, we as believers in Jesus Christ should be saturating ourselves with the word of God each and every day to them as much as we possibly can. From Genesis to Revelation, reading it over and over and over and over again. This is not just some mere book that you hold in your hand. It's the inspired word of God that in the practical hands of the Holy Spirit can change your life. This isn't some dead text. It's the living word of God. And as a result, it will dynamically transform your life. But that reading of the word accompanied with the worship of God and prayer. Now, when I talk about worship, I'm talking more about coming and simply praising him in songs together with our church family, which is wonderful to do, isn't it? Thanking him for all that he has done. But the worshiping of God in the Bible is so much more deep than that. It's the willingness to sacrifice that which is most precious for you to God. Taking it to God and saying, God, this means so much to me, but I'm giving it to you. And you then can give it back to me or keep it, Lord. If you have a heart that is willing to do that, then your prayer life will be unhindered. Because there are many of us, let's be honest, there are many of us who carry within our lives a propensity to worship idols. Now you may say, I don't have an idol in my purse or in my you know, house and so forth. An idol can be anything that takes your affection off of God and places it upon it. It can be a relationship. It can be an idea. It can be a goal. It can be an objective. It can be uh, a relationship, if I hadn't already said that. It can be so many different things. But what did God say when I want you to love me with all of your heart, all of your strength, all of your mind? What did he mean? Well, That's the question that we are going to tackle in our next series on Sunday mornings together. But as a result, 
when we're willing to worship God and spend time in prayer. This Monday, past Monday, we had our monthly prayer meeting here at the church. I would encourage all of you to think of coming out and spending an hour with your church family and praying. I hope God would lead you to do so, that you would make time to do that. I think it's one of the most important things that we do here. I'm not going to guilt you. I'm not going to make you feel bad for not coming. I'm sure that if you had something better to do than to pray to God, that God understands that. That if that TV show was so important to you that you could blow off God, I'm not going to guilt you for that. Getting the hint? I'm being funny, guys. Come on. You guys are really bad today. Can I just tell you? (laughs) But this Monday... We had a dear saint who fellowships with us. Uh, she uh, comes to a lot of the prayer meetings we have, and she was just sharing her testimony. And I will tell you that after I left there, I felt like, oh my goodness, I could walk on water. Just hearing her simplicity of faith, her trust in the Word of God. When she prayed, I felt like I was in the presence of the King Himself. And she was so encouraging to us. The love just overflowed from her life. And she was telling us how, she, how God took her from cancer, even though he, she said, Lord, if you take me home, I'm good for that. If you leave me here, I'm good with that. That how her doctors are now having her speak to people because they can't believe how much she's been healed. And to encourage her through the medical treatments, God gave her a doctor's named Grace, Peace, and Archangel. That was the actual doctor's last names. And she was confident. She said, okay, Lord, I know you got all things. Just just incredible. And I told you, I said, that's the way it should be for all of us. I said, oh, Lord, I got so far to go still. And you know, just incredible. Just an incredible experience. Incredible time. And that's what this does, spending time in His Word. Now, I've gotten to talk to many who are stating that they're struggling in their devotional life. Can I ask you to please take time to address that issue in your life? Make time to read the Word each and every day. Don't don't negate on it. You need it. And proceed it with prayer and succeed it with prayer. Wait on God after you read the word to let him speak to your heart through the Holy Spirit. To let him encourage you and to strengthen you. Why? Because as one concluded, we need it now more than ever. God had intended, he writes, Tom Constable, one of my favorite commentators, God intended this wonderful chapter to encourage us to continue to trust and to obey him in the midst of temptation, to turn away from following him faithfully. The implications is that our rewards as theirs is in the future and still yet to come. Number one, he says, we must understand that the rewards in which we are going to reap are going to be future-based. They're not found in the past. But it is this future that molds our present. That is so true. 
If I have an eternal mindset, that's going to affect the decisions that I make today, the actions in which I fulfill today, and the words in which I speak today. He then went on to write, he says, the men and women celebrated in the catalog of the attested exemplars all directed that capacity of faith to realities which for them lay in the future. They found in faith a reliable guide to the future, even though they died without experiencing the fulfillments of God's promises here on this earth. Allowing the eternal spiritual reality to be just as much a part of your personal reality as the physical is. That's what the objective and the goal is. And thirdly, the most distinctive aspect of the exposition is the development of the relation of faith to suffering and martyrdom. Again, we know that Christians around the world are suffering like no other. In the 1900s, we had the greatest wave of persecution against Christians, and that wave seems to continue today according to the voice of the martyrs. People are physically suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. And I feel so blessed in the wake of all that God has done in and through my life. But does that mean that I have more faith than my brother or sister who is suffering? I'm part of Christ? Absolutely not. In fact, I'll be surprised by the size of the crowns in which some of these individuals that we've never heard of are given. And knowing what usually happens to me, I'll be the next one in line, and the person in front of me will get this incredible crown for their suffering and for their life uh, you know, uh, spent in, by faith, waiting on God's uh, faithfulness. And then God will call me and says, hey, can you help them carry this? Yeah, be right there, God. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, here's yours. You can put yours in the back pocket. Okay, Lord, I got it, you know. Let us never forget that faith can be demonstrated not only in our pinnacles of zenith, but also in the valleys of difficulty and trial. And to God, it all matters. As I said from the very beginning, I believe Faith can operate in the life of any person who will dare to listen to God's word and surrender to God's will. Let's pray.